From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Imagine attending orientation for a job you don't know you have yet. That's the precarious position Democrat Adam Frisch is in. Getting pictures taken, I try to sit on the very edge just in case they have to cut me out at the end. They're still counting votes in his razor-thin race against incumbent Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. She declined our request for an interview before the result is determined, but Frisch joins us. Then, depression can be all-consuming. It's like everything's a fog. And it's very hard to even move. It's hard to think. And I'd say the worst part of it is that I didn't think that I had much of a future. But emerging therapies, including something called TMS, can lift that fog at a time when more people are struggling. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Democrat Adam Frisch is in Washington, D.C. this week for congressional orientation. But unlike Coloradans Dr. Yadira Caraveo and Brittany Pedersen, he's not sure if he'll be returning. Frisch's race against incumbent Republican Lauren Boebert in CD3 is still too close to call. A stunning fact given how much that district favors the GOP. I spoke with Frisch Tuesday afternoon. Congresswoman Boebert declined our invitation. Adam, welcome back to the show. Good to see you again, Ryan, or hear you. Is it weird to be orienting for a job you don't know you have yet? So, yeah, I mean, there are about 100 people invited. There's a handful of us, five or six from either party, that are going through training and going through the motions and getting pictures taken. I try to sit on the very edge just in case they have to cut me out at the end. And we're learning. And I'm here with some presumed staff because, you know, my personal belief is that the district has been neglected the past two years with the current representative's focus on everything but actually doing constituent services here. So while I have a strong legislative and business background, there's obviously a lot to learn about how to be one of 435 members of Congress. So people are very supportive of me on the Democratic side and Republican side. And again, there's four or five of us from both parties that are going through this exercise with intention. But, might, but their uh, races are too close to call as well, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're in the same. Now, you said you had Republican support. There are. I've been talking to Democrats and Republicans, new members of Congress. Yes, there's definitely some Republicans that are cheering for me, but everyone understands in a bipartisan manner that every year, every cycle, there's a handful of people that are in this position where they're too close to call so they can't define it legally, but it's so close that it's important for them to come and go through the process. Have you spoken with Congresswoman Boebert since Election Day? No. And I I don't think that's too strange. I think both people are waiting to see how this thing plays out. And if we end up coming up short, I will call her no later than when it gets certified by the Secretary of State and offer my concession. And if we end up coming up ahead, I think it would be the nice thing to do on her part. But we're not going to wait for that before we start moving the ball forward to make sure the citizens are looked after for CD3. Tell me something you've learned in orientation. 
I've learned how hard we worked or how hard anyone works in CD3. You know, the last three months of the campaign, Ryan, I slept in my bed about five or six days. The vast majority of people I've met have never had to sleep in a hotel to run for Congress because no part of the district is more than an hour or two away from where they are. You know, CD3 has one of the largest districts in the country. You know, Representative Bobart went through it at some level for sure. Representative Tipton, uh, Salazar going back. And so one of the things I'm realizing is like how big our district really is. And I knew we worked really hard, but people are amazed about the 23,000 miles that we drove or the 102 stops I did on those last 11 days. Uh, we understand election officials in Colorado are waiting for today's deadline to receive yes. ballots cast by military and overseas voters. There will also be tallies of some previously uncounted ballots. Uh, you have tweeted just recently, I want to reiterate that no one needs to wear out their mouse clicking refresh on the results. More curing and ballot counting will continue this week with additional vote counts dropping toward the end of the week. Deep breaths. Are you following your own advice? Yes. No, I mean, one of the things that's been kind of overwhelming is the amount of support and interest that this race and how close it's got from literally all over the country, including about 10 or 15 other countries of either foreigners living overseas because they're so shocked and they're so excited. So it has been daunting to kind of keep track and get back to everybody. And I just tell people, like, I feel bad because from prior professions and everything else, I try to focus. If I can't change something at that moment, I try not to worry about it too much. It will play out as it's supposed to play out. But we're obviously very focused on collecting as many of those ballots as we can. The chips will fall as they may. And I don't mean to me blase because it's a very consequential election for a lot of different reasons. Um, it's a very serious time in the country. And I'm going to take the job very, very seriously as well. But we're just trying to focus on remaining healthy and calm and paying attention of this unique experience that I'm going through along with 100 other people from age 25 to 65 that I think are making up some part of this new freshman bipartisan class. I hear you saying to let go of what you don't have control over, but both you and Congresswoman Boebert are scrambling to help people cure yes, their ballots. Yes. And that, that is fix their ballots so their vote is admissible, if you will. How familiar were you with the idea of ballot curing before this? Well, you know, I spent I've gone through a couple of elections on the city council in Aspen. Uh -huh. And so I knew what the verb meant. It's new to a lot of people. And again, I know a lot of people want to scare monger during election delays, but I'm not even sure this is a delay. You know, the, the easier it is to vote, I think the longer it takes to actually count. And that's one of the things I'm looking at. And, you know, for Colorado and California and some other states that bend over backwards to make sure every vote counts and everyone should vote, uh, it sometimes takes longer than we'd all like to see happen. And so I'm used to the curing process, but not to the level of where we are. We have people literally from um, all over the country helping us do the curing, in addition to all the work that's been done, boots on the ground in these 27 counties. That is, folks have come to Colorado for this work from all over the country, to put a final Yeah, there's two on things. It. One, phone calls can be made as well as doors can be knocked uh -huh. in other ways. It's almost like a get-out-the-vote operation again. And as you know, some of that can be done on the phone. 
a lot of that is boots on the ground, uh, just making sure that people are, you know, in the vast, vast majority of people who voted, they certainly want their vote to count. So the vast, vast majority of the people are happy to actually hear back from them that something on a technical basis might stop their vote from being counted. Again, it's nothing nefarious. It's just part of democracy. So what's interesting is we know unaffiliated voters played a huge role in your performance. Uh, yes. Just, just that's sort of inevitable from the math. Yeah. So when when the campaigns are curing, they don't necessarily know who that person voted for, right? So if you're calling someone to cure their vote, it's possible that a Bobert call helps a Frisch or a Frisch call helps a Bobert. Do you think that, is that true? Yeah, no. So obviously it's public who has voted. Yeah. It's certainly not public uh, how they voted. We, we, you know, listen, it's no secret. We assume the vast majority of Democrats voted for us. That's not obviously the case for Representative Bobert or otherwise we would not be in this position. We earned a tremendous amount of Republican votes and a lot of unaffiliated votes to get here. And so I think every campaign across the country for years is is trying to put some science to trying to figure out who do they want to call and advocate for making sure that their ballot gets cured. Hmm. But that's a bit of a guessing game in some cases with the unaffiliated. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, and there's, the Republicans. there's strategy to that on either side. Uh, some of it could be luck. Some of it is a guessing game. And we're excited to see how this plays out, uh, you know, sometime tomorrow night or maybe on Friday. CPR's Andrew Kenny, who's on our public affairs team, did some number crunching. While your performance in a very red district is remarkable, uh, Democratic participation in the third CD was actually down a bit. Did you get enough support from your own party or, or did they, too, think you were a long shot and not invest amply? Well, I think everyone thought I was a long shot. Whether that kept them away, I do not know. We, I've seen a little bit of headline news. We've been so focused on the curing process that at some point, it's always fun to dive into the data to see how people did. You know, I knew we were going to build this tripartisan coalition of unaffiliated Republicans and Democrats. But obviously, if we do come up short, and it turns out the Democratic voter base was lower than expected, you know, shame on them, but that's hard to say. We'll have to figure that out again. But the only thing I'm focused on right now, Ryan, is to make sure that we cure these ballots as much as possible, as well as making sure those overseas ballots get counted, which I'm sure they will. I have full faith uh, and belief in the Secretary of State's office, as well as the county clerks of these 27 counties around our district. And I know they're working very, very hard and they're under tremendous pressure, a lot more than I am. You say shame on them. Um, but, you know, you rejoined the Democratic Party to run against yeah. Congresswoman Boebert. Uh, and you didn't run as a dyed-in-the-wool Dem. No. I, I mean, do you think that that might have contributed to a softer Democratic turnout? It, it, well, I would have to look at the statewide elections compared to just our district, as well as what happened nationally before we can dive in there. But yes, no, there's definitely... I heard it during the election that some people might want to wait, quote unquote, for a real Democrat, which I'm not sure what one is, or that they didn't happen to like me, or I, I wore the wrong shirt one day, or well, who knows why people vote or not. But, you know, at the end of the day, I made it very clear that I would love to have people vote for me, not just against Representative Bobert, 
And so we try to run a positive campaign that was very focused. Um, but obviously, listen, it's not illegal not to vote. But, you know, we picked up a lot more Republican votes than she picked up Democratic votes. Uh, and I'm confident, obviously, the unaffiliated vote went our way big time as well. That showed up in our polling. And I think that showed up by the definition of where we are now. If you pull out a victory, don't you necessarily lose to a more moderate Republican in two years? And, you know, I realize that question, Adam Frisch, fast forwards a lot and makes all sorts of presumptions. But no, know, no, no, it's we, fine. <laughs> we need to be honest about the kind of electoral realities no, no. of this district and its history, too. You know, I made it very clear when I was running that if when I win, let's assume I don't want to serve for 40 years, but I would probably want to do it again because I think I will do a really good job. There is a path, either uh, Representative Bobart or another person that we'll call an extremist is going to want to run, because that's kind of where the Republican Party is. But I actually don't think Donald Trump's going to get the Republican ballot. We can talk about that later on. But if all of a sudden a traditional Republican runs, it's I'm going to start, again, seven, eight points behind. But what I plan on having with me then is a proven track record of respect to everybody, regardless if they voted for me or not, and a legislative record that will show that I'm actually focusing on deliver on the citizens and businesses of CD3. And everyone's asking me in D.C. what my goals are. And I talk about water's number one, energy two, and the ag farming ranching is number three. That was my and, next question. And, and I'm yes. curious what, what committee or committees you yeah, particularly so I've like talked to about, you know, Water is really number one important. Two is just domestic energy production, as well as making sure we have that transition more and more into renewable energies. But, you know, I think when any president is begging Saudi Arabia for energy help, we might want to have a different energy policy than we're not begging Saudi Arabia for help. And then the third bucket of focus is ag ranching and farming. There are a variety of committees that are specifically focused on that. And then there's some subcommittees they come from some pretty important things like appropriation and ways and means where, you know, those are the dream committees that people get on with more seniority. But we'll see how it all plays out. Were you surprised by how well you did election night? And will you be surprised if you pull out a victory? With humility, no. What I wrote down a year ago in those couple of pages showed that there was a way to win by a little, little bit at the very, very end. And so whether we win by a little, little bit or lose by a little, little bit, it certainly happened at the very end. And so, no, I mean, I say with pride that I know we were going to work hard. I knew that 40% of the Republican Party wants their party back. I knew that the Democratic brand was damaged. But if I worked really, really hard and connect with enough people, I think we could have built this coalition of this pro-normal party coalition. And that is a subset of a lot of Dems and a handful of Republicans and a good chunk of unaffiliateds. And the math is that's enough to actually win. And is, so is that what was on those pages was math? What, yeah, what? it was a little bit of just some math and a little bit of 40 percent of the Republican Party. Trumpism, I think extremism is starting to come to an end. And I said this a year ago, not, you know, last Wednesday after everybody woke up. I thought that if someone could work hard, uh, the fact that she did not win her a home district, those that know her don't care for her. A lot more people know her now than before and not for good reason. So I knew that she was building up uh, more negatives than when she started and she only won by 5%. 
all these things kind of came together. You know, she's never been focused on this district. Now, she generates a lot of media, which attracts a lot of people, of course, by the math that plays out. But, you know, I think her Achilles heel about how we got here is that she was not focused on this district and she was not delivering for her voters or those who did not vote for her. You speak as if she has gotten very little support, but she's gotten as much or possibly more support than you. So there are clearly people who feel well represented by her. Well, yes, no, without a doubt, there's some people that like what she says or how she says it. There's a combination of people that just do not care for the Democratic Party. But listen, I would say with respect, 538 had this as an R15 district and we're basically tied. 538, the political math said that this might be the biggest upset in the history of their model. And so I agree that we could end up losing. And certainly, to be very clear, I'm not going to be surprised or shocked if we lose. I'll be disappointed for the district in the country, but I'm not going to be surprised. But at the same said, I would say with humility, I'm not going to be shocked or surprised that we're going to win, A, because we're so close, and B, because, you know, this is a gut reaction that I had about a year ago that there actually was a path. Adam, thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks, Ryan. Adam Frisch is the Democrat hoping to represent Colorado's 3rd Congressional District, which includes Grand Junction, Aspen, Pueblo. Again, we asked his opponent, Republican incumbent Lauren Boebert, for an interview. Her team suggested we circle back once the race is called. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. An RTD R-Line train derailed in Aurora just over a month ago. The route is still out of commission. This is the second derailment in the last four years in the same spot. The first resulted in a passenger losing part of her leg. CPR's Nathaniel Miner shares her story. When Karen Millette was a younger woman, she very rarely drove a car. She recently showed me a picture of herself back in the 1990s on her bicycle. Ah! I found it. That's the Seattle bicycle picture of me that I was thinking of. In this photo, Karen's wearing a big red shirt and a determined look. Now she's in her mid-60s. She's a Coloradan, but has lived all over, in cities like Seattle and London. And in each place, bicycle or public transportation was her main mode of travel. I think that there's no reason why we have six cars to each family. I just think that that's really stupid for the planet. So when Karen was looking for a new place in Aurora, she chose a townhouse close to an RTD light rail station. She rode it to work all the time and loved it until one snowy morning in January 2019. She took a spot in the back of the train. And, you know, I stood there and ridden there many times safely. Um, But this time, um, yeah, yeah. This time was different. The train driver accelerated out of the station, hitting nearly 40 miles per hour. Then he slammed on the brakes before a very sharp turn. But it was too late. 
The train began to sway really badly. I fell and I ended up with my head pointed down the stairwell. And the last thought I had before losing consciousness for a couple of seconds was, I'm going out the door. Hmm. The train had rocked so hard that the doors popped open. Karen fell out onto the road. When I woke up, (laughs) I did what my mother always taught me to do, count fingers and toes, Uh, just as a way of safety check, you know? And my right foot was there, but oh, left foot's not there. Oh, I guess I need a tourniquet. The back of the train had sliced off her foot and leg. Karen says in that moment, lying on the cold, wet ground, surrounded by strangers, she realized she was alive, but that the rest of her life was going to be very, very different from the life she had planned. She had to learn how to walk again. Her old habits and hobbies were long gone. In my moment of unconsciousness, the old Karen died. And there was a new one. And the new one now wears a prosthetic. She's not on her bicycle anymore. Taking the photographs that she loves is difficult. She's lost her trust in RTD, but she's alive. RTD gave Karen a nearly $400,000 settlement. RTD's investigation blamed driver error for the crash. But Karen believes the R-Line's second derailment shows that its design is unsafe, that it makes too many sharp turns. She thinks RTD needs to install a safety system that would prevent rail operators from speeding. RTD has said it can't afford it. The agency will publish an investigation into the latest derailment soon. Karen still supports public transit. And she believes statistics that show it's far safer than traveling by car. But she won't ride RTD anymore. She says she misses it, and a lot about her old life. But she also doesn't want to dwell on the past. Because the if-onlys and the what-ifs, they will kill you. You need to bring everything that you are to bear on on who and what you are now. And, And just carry on, you know, because that other, that other path, it's gone. It's done. She learned that very hard lesson decades ago when her son Tommy developed a cancerous brain tumor. He died when he was just 10 years old. Karen says she carried on through that pain, just like she carries on through this one. Her son showed her that it's possible to keep living, and that makes her stronger now. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters, back in the next half hour on CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Anxiety and depression hit about one in 10 adults in the U.S. before the pandemic. After, it was one in three. Good news is emerging treatments show promise for people with mood disorders. We'll explore some of them today, starting with TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
Danielle Volks is a healthcare technician in Aurora. If I can help one person, if I can get one person like me to go and do this, it would be great. But hopefully it would be more people. Volks has endured a lot of trauma. At 13, she lost her mother to breast cancer, then developed it herself. And I didn't know I was depressed. I thought I was just like a crappy person, you know, like that I was just really negative all the time and really sad all the time. And I wasn't fun and I didn't do the things I needed to do to live a good life. In her 20s, Volks heard from an estranged aunt that depression ran in the family. She got a therapist and was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Now 43, she's tried almost every antidepressant. They made her less depressed, but sort of blah about everything. She eventually gave up on medication. The depression persisted. It's like, um, like everything's a fog and it's very hard to, to even move. It's hard to think. Um, it, it just, and I'd say the worst part of it is that just, I didn't think that I had much of a future. Well, this June, a psychiatrist suggested she be evaluated for this treatment called TMS. I've read about TMS and I thought, oh, there's no way that would work for me. That seems a little weird. You know, it seems uncomfortable. Transcranial magnetic stimulation is a non-invasive procedure. Magnetic fields stimulate nerve cells in the brain to improve symptoms of depression. A coil is placed against a patient's scalp near their forehead, focused on the part of the brain controlling mood and depression. The treatment is five days a week for six weeks. Volk says, despite having little hope, she tried it. The actual stimulation takes 20 minutes and you just lay in like a dentist chair with a little like swim cap on that helps them with the placement. And it clicks and it kind of pounds and it's hard to get used to, but it wasn't as bad as I thought it would. It wasn't intolerable. It's just kind of weird. About two and a half weeks in, Volk said she started feeling better. And then she says her depression was just gone. And, you know, I wake up every day now and I'm happy. I don't, there's some days where I'm like, oh, I don't, you know, today at work is going to be really rough and I'm, I'm dreading it. But I I completely marvel at this. And I actually went through a ton of stressful events during my treatment, which I was really worried about. And I handled it all really well and had like kind of some therapy breakthroughs on my own just because my entire thought process was changed. Insurance paid for the treatment. That is increasingly common. Let's learn more about TMS and other emerging treatments for mood disorders with Dr. Chris Schneck. He's a psychiatrist and medical director of the Depression Center at CU Anschutz. And doctor, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Danielle Volk's story sounds almost too good to be true. Have you seen other patients with similar results uh, with TMS? You know, her story is a great story. And, um, you know, with with TMS, at least at our center, we're seeing maybe 50 to 70% of patients getting a very good response. Um, it's nice to hear particularly about uh, her struggle and improvement given how long she struggled with depression and the number of antidepressant trials she had had. 50 to 70% success, is that, put that into context for us, is that higher than other modalities? 
Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the overall problem in what she describes is a thing called treatment-resistant depression, and that typically is defined as a patient failing two or more antidepressant trials. And when we see that and they get antidepressant trial upon antidepressant trial upon another one, you know, we don't see great responses. So to have a 50% response rate in a group of patients that are particularly struggling to get better is, is really quite remarkable. Is it then mostly that people with treatment-resistant depression are seeking out TMS? It sounds like that's the patient population for the most part. Uh, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's accurate, that, that they are seeking out TMS. TMS itself can only be delivered to patients who have treatment-resistant depression. That's the insurance parameters uh -huh. that, are, that are put on it. Uh, so you typically have to have severe depression, and then you need to have failed one or sometimes two or more antidepressant trials. Now, the key question, because you mentioned the length of time that Danielle had been struggling, uh, is how long does the benefit last of this transcranial magnetic stimulation? Well, that's a question that we are still trying to figure out. I, it's nice to hear in her experience that it has lasted. Some patients need uh, TMS farther down the road. And right now, there really isn't such a thing as maintenance TMS where they come back every so often. So we are still trying to learn how long does TMS effect last, and when should we do it again? But you are doing it again in some cases? For patients who have a relapse of depression, yes. Okay. How often do you see that? Uh, that I, I'm not really sure I can say, uh, given that in our TMS center, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Fenstermacher is running our TMS site, and she has a better sense of how many patients may be coming back. Our program itself just started in June. That's right. It's fledgling, although the treatment itself is not. Uh, when did it get its start? And maybe you can explain to us uh, how it works well, how it works successfully. Yeah, TMS was approved by the FDA for treatment of depression in 2008. And when I say approved, it's a specific machine that the FDA grants approval for. Oh. There are since many other machines that have, have been approved for TMS. So it began in 2008. Uh, your description, though, at the, at the beginning of the program about how it works was quite accurate, which is that it uses rapidly alternating magnetic pulses to then induce rapidly alternating electrical currents in parts of the brain that we think are important for managing mood. So it's not numbing anything. It's not killing anything. It is stimulating things. That's correct. It's stimulating electrical activity and neurons. That weren't firing on their own as much? I mean, I know this is awfully layman's terms that I'm using here, but... Well, this, this gets into our scientific struggles with what exactly is depression, how is depression caused, and oh. we think it more likely has to do with problems with communication among different circuits of the brain that are important in managing mood, as well as perhaps intrinsic deficits in those areas of the brain so they don't communicate well mm. with one another. So it's it's maybe that you're getting the conversation restarted. That's a way to think about okay. it. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, we should say that TMS is not to be confused with ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, which has been around also for many years, uh, many more actually in its case. When should someone turn to ECT? Yeah, ECT is is 
has been around since, oh, I think the 40s, yeah. and it causes a seizure. Uh, and for reasons that, again, we don't quite understand, having seizures does seem to improve depression. Uh, now, your question, when should somebody get TMS versus ECT, that tends to be a difficult clinical question depending on the severity of the person's depression, how suicidal they might be, and then, of course, what they want because mm -hmm. ECT is a treatment that, while very effective, still carries a lot of stigma. Patients have to be anesthetized. After they have a seizure, they're quite confused. They have to have a recovery time, whereas TMS, patients walk into our clinic. They have the, the treatment just as, as this person said in about 20 minutes, and then they leave. And that's not something that can happen with ECT easily. You, on several occasions now, you've said, for reasons we don't quite understand. It's refreshing to hear a doctor say that. It's also a little scary. Is it frustrating? It is. I, th the, the exciting part is that we're learning more all the time. But, you know, unlike, I think, any other medical specialty, uh, psychiatry is the only area where we rely entirely on a patient's history to make a diagnosis. There's no tests we can do. And there are so many things about the brain we still don't understand. It, you know, and basic things like, well, what is depression? Mm -hmm. and, and where does depression come from? I can also imagine that being comforting for someone with depression, struggling with why am I this way? Why do I experience this? And if the medical community is asking that as well, it's just a confirmation you're not alone in wondering. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is psychiatrist from the CU Depression Center, Dr. Chris Schneck. We're talking about emergent treatments for depression and anxiety. And I'd love to talk about ketamine for a moment uh, in the context of psychedelics. So ketamine's been used as a sedative by paramedics, infamously in the case of Elijah McClain, who died in Aurora police custody. And yet it also has applications for depression, anxiety, and other conditions. How does it work? Well, you're going to hear something similar to what I said earlier, which is we're not exactly sure how it works, uh -huh. but it does modulate an important neurotransmitter in the brain called glutamate, and that's actually the most abundant neurotransmitter in the brain. Uh, and it, unlike traditional antidepressant therapy, uh, works within hours to days, whereas antidepressants typically take weeks to months to work. They have to build up, don't they? Something has to build up. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, the, the drug itself doesn't, but the changes that t uh, traditional antidepressants induce takes time to achieve an antidepressant effect. And so ketamine is faster. I'll say a nasal form was approved by the FDA pretty recently. And these infusion centers have popped up. Uh, I understand Medicare is taking care of some of that. Well, Medicare covers S-ketamine, not ketamine. So ketamine is an intravenous drug, or it's also delivered uh, intramuscularly. It can be delivered orally. Whereas S-ketamine, which is what's called an enantomer, which is a mirror image of the drug, hmm. that is delivered through a nasal, what's called a nasal insufflator. And people put it up their nose and spray it up their nose. And that drug, the brand name is Spravato, is uh, covered by insurance. And are they all essentially as beneficial as the other? There is some evidence that intravenous ketamine may be more effective than 
uh, nasal S-ketamine, but there really have not been any comparator studies pitting one drug against the other. Mm -hmm. So as best we can tell, there's a bit of evidence that intravenous ketamine may be better. Let's talk about psilocybin of particular interest because in Colorado, voters just approved a measure to decriminalize mushrooms and set up centers where people can use this under supervision. What does the research say so far about the use of psilocybin for depression and anxiety? Well, the the research is very interesting and I have to say very promising for somebody like me who treats patients with depression. Uh, it's nice to potentially have an alternative that may be more effective. It uh, was designated as a breakthrough drug in 2018. Is that an FDA thing? That is an FDA thing. Okay. Uh, the, the, the thing that got people interested in psilocybin again occurred in 2008 when patients who were suffering from life-threatening cancer were given psilocybin, and it greatly improved their depression and anxiety. And that restarted the path of being very interested in the potential of this drug to help patients with depression. I mean, talk about depression, right? That's existential depression. That's, I may die from this. Well, that's exactly how it gets labeled as, as existential depression. That's oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I imagine that, let's just rewind to when you were in school. Do you feel like you've got way more tools at your disposal than you did then? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. Really in the last, I would say, five to seven years, things have really been looking more hopeful and optimistic because for the longest time we've had antidepressants that sort of do what all antidepressants do. They modulate essentially three neurotransmitters, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. They were all versions of the same song. They really were. And to suddenly have something like transcranial magnetic stimulation, ketamine, esketamine, and now potentially psilocybin uh, really does provide more opportunities to, to help patients and hopefully get them better. I understand that you're starting a small study of psilocybin, and I'm curious how you come up with a placebo group when the effects are presumably so powerful of mushrooms. That's a very interesting point because, of course, patients generally are going to know if they're taking a psychoactive drug versus just, quote-unquote, a sugar pill, which is what a placebo is. Mm -hmm. And there have been lots of struggles with studies trying to figure out how do you mask real drug effect versus having a placebo. So you try to come up with what are called active, active comparators. Sometimes that may be a stimulant like Ritalin where patients can feel it. What many studies are now doing is using very small doses of psilocybin. So patients know they are going to get psilocybin, but the dose is what is different. The ethics of that are fascinating too, of course. Wow. Okay. Uh, I know that there are some uh, practitioners using psilocybin with their patients kind of underground. Do you feel, as Colorado embarks on this journey, that there's a good set of standards for practitioners? Just briefly. Yeah, I, I, it's very unknown right now. What's the best treatment? We're still trying to figure out the dose. What's the best therapy that goes along with psilocybin? Uh, these are drugs that are powerful, but there's so much we don't know right now. Uh, I'm, of course, a scientist, so I try to proceed with data and be methodical and cautious. 
given what happened recently with Prop 122, we will see what happens in the Colorado landscape. Yeah, there's a lot of rulemaking to follow. Doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much. Dr. Christopher Schneck, he's medical director for the Helen and Arthur E. Johnson Depression Center. He's also a professor of psychiatry at the CU School of Medicine. We talked about emerging treatments for anxiety, depression, and other mood disorders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The stretch of Highway 550 between Silverton and Uray takes drivers over Red Mountain Pass at 11,000 feet without guardrails on its narrowest sections. The road clings precariously to the edge of plunging cliffs and sees as much as 25 feet of snow each winter. It's terrified many a soul and taken a few. Yet wagon drivers paid to use the road in the late 1800s to get valuable ore from mines to market. When automobiles came along, few believed one could make the trip. But in 1911, a doctor went from Ure to Ironton in a Model T for a house call. After the road was paved in the 50s, it became a tourist destination. And since then, many travelers have braved the treacherous yet exhilarating 20-mile drive. It's called the Million Dollar Highway. But the awe-inspiring views and bragging rights to driving one of the world's most unforgettable roads are priceless. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles. The Colorado Plateau is a huge outdoor playground spanning four southwestern states. It contains an abundance of national and state parks, monuments, and wilderness areas. A new guidebook reveals some hidden wonders, including perfect spots for fall and winter visits. That's when author Bill Haggerty writes, it's no longer hotter than Hades. He joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction last fall. Tell us exactly what the Colorado Plateau is. It pretty much covers the Four Corners area of Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and New Mexico. It goes from um, the north rim of the Grand Canyon, Flagstaff, all the way up east of Salt Lake City to Dinosaur National Monument, and then down almost to Albuquerque. My particular book skips the San Juan, southern San Juan Mountains, even though a lot of geologists would say that's also part of the Colorado Plateau. When I think of the term plateau as being a kind of higher flat thing in comparison to the land around it. Is that the right thinking? Well, it is um, because the plateau itself is a relatively stable chunk of rock. Hmm. Um, and it's kind of based along the fault lines way down under the earth. But even though it's a stable piece of rock, um, because of the altitude and because of the terrain, it looks really ripped up, mostly by water, mostly by the Colorado River, the Green River, and their tributaries. And the rivers are really what does define the plateau. Um, So it looks very eroded, but in general, it is a pretty stable chunk of rock. You have primarily written hiking books, uh, but this new one also includes rafting, bike rides, drives, events, even restaurant recommendations. Sounds positively overwhelming. Like, how do you decide what to include? Well, that was that was tough, but I'll tell you, the way it started was I decided what not to include. <laughs> and that was really the major parks, you know, There's nothing in this book about Zion, Bryce, Arches, you know, the major ones. Because those areas, those national parks are simply loved to death right now. They're totally overrun with people. And I wanted 
I wanted people to get out and discover the rest of the plateau. Um, it's 140,000 square miles. And there's a lot of property out there that people just don't know about. And it's all public. Um, the parts that are not public are on Native American reservations. The Navajo, that's the largest Navajo nation, largest you know, Native American reservation in the United States right now. So there's a lot of property out there that people can visit without getting overrun in those national parks. Spread out, people. There's room for all of us. Right. Yeah. Right. I know right. that you happened upon the Bluff International Balloon Festival, and it really struck your fancy. Oh, it was so fun. I, it's in the middle of January every year, so it's cold. But it's nothing like the Albuquerque Balloon Festival, you know, where they get hundreds and hundreds of balloons. The Bluff International usually gets, you know, seven, eight, 10, 15 balloons maybe. It's, it was made international by a uh, gentleman from Germany who came and flew one year. But it's a relatively small, very tight-knit gathering. And if you show up uh, to the Bluff Elementary School on the Friday night before it happens, it's <laughs> usually the middle weekend of January, you'll get a taco dinner and a Navajo fry bread and uh, support the school a little bit. And you can meet these pilots who fly and you can become part of their, uh, their crew for the next day and you might even get a flight yourself. In Bluff, Utah, the Bluff International Balloon Festival, Coral Pink Sand Dunes State Park in southern Utah, and Bistai Denezen Wilderness Area in northern New Mexico. Tell us about those. All fascinating places. Most people have never, ever heard of Bistai Denezen. It was a wilderness area that was actually established by Ronald Reagan way back when. And it's some of the weirdest, wildest rock you have ever seen in your life, Ryan. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how the, some of this stuff was was created. It was basically, you know, a lot of volcanic cinder block and, and it's just crunched down to some weird, strange, odd rock. And it's, there's, I mean, there's no vegetation out there at all. Maybe a one or two barrel cactus and a couple of other plants. I think scientists say there are actually eight different plant species out there, but that's it. I mean, it is, it is wild and rugged and it's south of Farmington, about 40 miles south of Farmington, New Mexico. Um, the other, the other one you just mentioned, coral pink sand dunes, uh, is along the Arizona Strip, really it's a state park in Utah that's right on the Arizona border near Colorado City and Hinsdale and mm. Fredona, Arizona. Really, really unique. It's really the only sand dune on the Colorado Plateau created by uh, wind whipping through a couple of mountains to the west of it and just whipping this, this beautiful, beautiful Navajo sands right through this uh, gap and it's just created some magnificent sand dunes. And when the sun is either rising or setting, I can't quite tell from these photographs, the sky and the sand take on similar hues of pink. I mean, just magnificent. Two out of the way places you like in Colorado are the Sand Canyon Pueblo and the nearby Cutthroat Castle ruins near Cortez. What stands out to you? Really, really beautiful examples of archaeology and architecture from a thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. 
uh, sand castle in the Canyon of the Ancients National Monument actually cuts across the Utah border from Colorado into Hovenweep National Monument, which is where Cutthroat Castle is located. Really, really fine examples of Native American architecture and art. Beautiful, beautiful canyons, pretty easily accessible. People can find them. They're well delineated. You know, you can walk the path of the ancient ones. You can really feel their spirit in those canyons. They're beautiful places to go visit. You open the book with a quote from the late sitar musician Ravi Shankar. And I'm paraphrasing here. But he said that people are living more in their heads than in their hearts and are filling silences with too many words. Bill, you strike me as a wordsmith. Do you have to fight against filling the silence when you're on the Colorado Plateau? Oh, Ryan, that's a good question. Yes, I think we all have to fight that, but we also have to embrace it. I think one of the healthiest things for me on this trip was, you know, embracing that silence, embracing that that space. I needed to do a little contemplation in nature and and with big wide open skies and no traffic and few people it's a really good place to kind of reconnect to your own soul. Hmm. I know that in addition to the pandemic you had some health struggles and some family struggles and it sounds as though the plateau was something of a healing place for you uh, more to be revealed if you read this uh, new guidebook, uh, just in the last few moments, you have a few essays in the book about Colorado Plateau characters and animals that piqued your interest. Is it the Kaibab squirrel? <laughs> the great elusive Kaibab squirrel, one of the best safaris I've ever been on, was a photo safari going to look for Kaibab squirrels. Uh, it's a very, very unique squirrel. It's only found there actually in Grand Canyon Parashant National Monument and on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Hmm. It's very similar to an Abert squirrel here in Colorado that people might you know, know about it. The, the Aberts are pure black. They've got funky little tufts of hair on their ears. The Kaibab squirrel has those funky little tufts of of hair. It's also got a little bit of a red streak on its back and pure white tails. So they're pretty unique. And it was fun just chasing them around with my camera for a few days. I had a great time. The Kaibab squirrel. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for sharing the people, places, and critters of the Colorado Plateau. Oh, you bet. Great talking to you, Ryan. Bill Haggerty is the author of Discovering the Colorado Plateau. He joined us from our Grand Junction studio in October of last year. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to a team that is always exploring. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.